Welcome to Find the Magic, the podcast that will help you honor yourself, your kids, and your partner. We'll give you tips and strategies to create peace and authenticity within your family. We inhale a ridiculous amount of books and life tools and distill the information for you. I'm Terilyn Griffin. I'm Caitlin Gabriel. And I'm Felicia Allen. Let's find the magic together. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right. Hey, everybody. We are here today with Jen Lumelon of Your Parenting Mojo podcast. And I am so excited to have her on. We have had so many questions flooding in from all of our listeners um, about what am I going to do this fall when it comes to schooling. We're all in a stage of having to make a big decision that we've never had to make, or perhaps we don't have any decision, we don't have any choice. And so I was so excited to talk to Jen and see if she can bring us a little insight into um, some different schooling resources and some way to think about schooling our kids. But first, we are going to do our face palms and high fives. I'm gonna start us off. Um, I'm going to give a high five to my new little babe, Wes. She um, has kind of caught on to a little bit of a predictive schedule. So I'm back doing a little more interviewing and work for the podcast. And that always feels nice when you emerge out of the newborn fog of no predictability. <laughs> so that's the high five's going to her today. And Jen, what about you? Um, yeah, I think my high five's going to my daughter as well. Um, it's, it's early we're recording, so we haven't had much of a day yet today, but, um, yesterday she had a really hard time not wanting to leave the house and I had a lot of calls and meetings and, um, I was able to hold space for how she was feeling and she was not at all happy about it and letting me know in no uncertain terms. (laughs) Um, but somehow together we kind of got through it and, um, I was able to help her get dressed and she left the house and she had an amazing day with her dad. How old is your daughter? She just turned six. Oh, that's my little, my oldest just turned six. It is a, it's a fun, such a fun age. Um, so why don't we let that lead us into, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us about your family and how, how you kind of got into podcasting and all that. 
Oh, goodness. Yeah. So um, I basically got into podcasting to provide the resource that I wished was already out there. Um, mm. I never thought I would be a parent and uh, never had any desire to have children at all, <laughs> but became one not by accident. I actually did make the choice to do that. <laughs> and <laughs> um, after she was born, I pretty quickly realized I had no parenting intuition whatsoever, but uh, I had really good research skills. <laughs> And so I realized I could use the skills with the latter to plug the gaps with the former and started the Your Parenting Mojo podcast uh, basically as a way of sharing what I was learning with other people. Um, went back to school, got a master's in psychology, focused on child development and just thought, you know, it's crazy to be learning all this stuff that so many people want to know more about and not be sharing it with other people. Right. I, I love, love that about you. You are so strongly research based and I feel like that is perhaps missing in a lot of, um, well, I think there is value to just open conversation and, but also when you know that you're going somewhere that has information backed by research, it is, it just feels good, especially as a parent where we're bombarded with information. And I think that a lot of parents are just searching for, but, but really tell me, tell me what, <laughs> Tell me what's true. And so I love that about, <laughs> about your podcast. And really that's beautiful that we can parent, you know, I, I have heard from a lot of our listeners. I don't innately feel like I'm good in quotes at being a mom. And mm -hmm. that, I love that you shared that, that maybe you didn't think that was your calling and you found your own beautiful space inside of it. So that, mm. I love that. <laughs> it was definitely a journey yeah, <laughs> and it started with one of those emails that we all get from a parenting platform that shall remain unnamed that said something like you know six ways to tell if your child has a developmental delay right uh, and and quoted the results of one study and gave you no indication of whether that study was completely out there and nobody else was paying attention to it or if it represented the body of evidence and I'm thinking well how can we how can we actually make any decisions based upon this information yeah. we can't and and why isn't anyone collating all of this together and so yeah that was that was why I created the podcast oh so, so inspiring, really. And it's inspiring me to be more research-based or perhaps just come <laughs> to Jen <laughs> and listen to her. All right. I love that. So, so many of our listeners, like I said, are really facing this big decision this fall. And I wanted to have on a couple of people that might have some insight into, first of all, should we be worried? Should we be feeling so stressed about deciding what we're going to do with our kids this fall? What's your take on that? <laughs> <laughs> um, my take on that is we probably spend too much time worrying about our children. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I mean, I think there are a couple of main things that parents are worried about and, and we can go into more depth on each of these as you, as you um, see fit. But the two things most parents are worried about is socialization. So um, are my children going to miss out on developing some crucial skills in some way because they're not in school for some long period of time? Mm -hmm. 
or uh, are they not going to be able to get ahead? You know, they're not going to develop right. the skills that they need. So there's that aspect of it. And then there's the learning aspect of it, the academics. Um, are they going to uh, kind of create some kind of gap, some kind of deficit that we're not going to be able to overcome in the future if we miss some kind of critical learning window? And I would say that in both cases, um, that there is not nearly as much to worry about as parents are probably worried about right now. Hit the nail on the head. Those are the two things I have like in bold that everybody's <laughs> asking. And also based on my not as in-depth research as yours, I have also come to the conclusion of chill out. Mm -hmm. We'll be fine. But mm -hmm. let's go into both of those to, yeah. to really. So first socialization, what have you found in your research that can show us it's going to be okay? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, if when we think about it from a, a macro perspective, the idea of putting a bunch of kids together that don't have social skills, I mean, as they don't at a young age and saying, okay, well, you're all going to learn social skills from each other. <laughs> Right, it's right. really kind of strange <laughs> um, and it wasn't the way that children were raised throughout human history um, children have uh, all children in all cultures enjoy play play is not mm -hmm. equally valued in all cultures and some children in some cultures are less able to play than others because they have uh, differing responsibilities um, but the anthropological research suggests that all children when given a chance will engage in play um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's the only way they can learn social skills Children mm -hmm. learn social skills very effectively from their parents in their very early years. They learn language. They learn how to interact with somebody to get things they need. Um, they can learn sharing from a parent. They don't have to learn this from a peer. Right. So, um, so, so these kinds of skills are not skills that you exclusively can learn from pe people who are your own age in a preschool kind of environment. So, so there's that aspect of socialization. And then I just actually released a podcast episode this weekend on um, that, that sort of looks at this and then also goes beyond that to say, well, what else are we learning in schools? What, what other ways are we socialized in schools? And it turns out that one of the main things that we're socialized uh, for in schools is the perpetuation of white privilege. Oh. Um, because every every aspect of the school day from the way that we kind of proceed through it on a on a, um, a on a way that's regulated by bells you know <laughs> move through it a, uh -huh. a bell rings you move to something else a bell rings you move to something else this kind of regimented view of time mm -hmm. um, to the way that we reward children who aren't developmentally ready to sit still to <laughs> for sitting still and and we really privilege those skills um, to the way that we do show and tell and that that um, sort of trains children to communicate and to receive information in a way that white people communicate and receive information that's very different from people the way people in some other cultures do mm -hmm. and so there's this other aspect of socialization that goes on in schools that is really sort of it's the subtext it's unacknowledged but it's there and it's a very important function of schools yeah, that's interesting to think about and when I think about that question of socialization I think well most of the time they're just sitting there listening to one person <laughs> in front of the room they're not really interacting uh -huh. that much with each other and I think of this is just anecdotal but looking at my son he's six and he didn't go to any forms of preschool and really his interaction with with kids was across age groups mm -hmm. and in his play so that's cousins ranging you know in twice his age or 
play group, like, you know, play dates at the park where the kids are all ranging in age. And I, I saw when he went to kindergarten that his, his play went much deeper and, and more wide ranging when he had that um, swath of kids that were in Mm -hmm. different ages um, than it did when he was in his, his kindergarten classroom. Is there any, is that just in my mind? No, it's not. It's really not. (laughs) Um, yeah, the Dr. Peter Gray has done uh, research looking at the benefits of mixed age learning environments because um, he's done a lot of research on Sudbury schools, which are sort of they're, they're schools in name, but in, <laughs> that's, right. a, that's about the only way in which they <laughs> resemble a school. There's no curriculum, there's no classes. You can basically learn whatever you want from whoever you want. And so what they end up having is these these mixed aged cohorts where people, if you happen to be the most knowledgeable person about something and you happen to be seven, then you could end up teaching a 16 year old (laughs) and vice versa. And so he's done research on that, that indicates that children learn very, very effectively when they are in these mixed age groups. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't just benefit the younger child. Yes, the younger child might pick up skills from the older child who has more years of experience, but also the older child learns how to um, kind of modify their play in a way that makes it fit uh, and work for younger children um, Mm -hmm. and can maybe test their skills you know if you're thinking and you're playing a basketball game you could a 16 year old can dunk over a seven-year-old's head every time but right. there are ways to make that game challenging and practice new skills that maybe you wouldn't try on another 16 year old um, that yeah. you can try in that environment and also when you've when you've just learned a new skill one of the best ways of solidifying that in your mind is to teach it to somebody else <laughs> and one of the best ways to learn a new skill is to learn it from somebody who just learned it because they're not stuck in there you know I'm advanced I can't remember what it was like to be a beginner stage right. they just learned it themselves and they can tell you oh yeah when I learned to ride a bike it was easiest when I did this you know when I started on a slight downslope whereas mm-hmm. I don't remember that from riding a bike 30 right. years ago right. so so yeah there's there's so many benefits of mixed age play um that, that we shouldn't think that just because our child isn't in a, a a room with peers of exactly their same age all day that they're missing out in some way right that is really refreshing to hear because I think a lot of um a lot of moms when they're thinking about having their kids in a more homeschool environment they are going to be inter- not interacting with their exact age group as consistently so mm-hmm. yeah. that's that's cool to hear so when we're talking about play I I really love to hear um research that is you know, supportive and helps us see how play and interest-led learning um, does teach our kids. I feel like the perception is, oh, if my kids are just playing, especially mm-hmm. how we are as parents now, where it's like, okay, onto the flashcards, onto the art project, mm-hmm. onto basketball practice. And I really push against that because I, not even in research, I just saw with my, my boys, so I have three boys, how their little brains when engaged in play, I feel like it was really helping their brains become stronger is not the right word, but more gritty. They had more patience. They could last longer in a lot of situations where, um, because I wasn't pushing them onto the next thing. Mm -hmm. So do you have any insight into that on, on how parents can relax with, 
the next scheduled thing? Can we just let our kids <laughs> play? Like, is that okay? Are they going to be good if we just let them play? Yes. Yeah, they really are. And you, and you introduced a key phrase there, interest-led learning, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> which is sort of its own whole massive conversation. Um, but yeah, I mean, what you're essentially describing is the way all people learn best, which is that they learn things that are interesting to them. They mm -hmm. learn things that are relevant to their lives and they want to know. Um, you know, if you think about when you launched your podcast, there were a whole bunch of skills you didn't have and you really wanted to know that you really wanted to launch the podcast. And so mm -hmm. you needed to learn things about how to record and how to edit and how to publish it. And, um, and, and your goal of, of getting that pub podcast published was what carried you through, uh, some tasks that maybe were less interesting to you, um, but still needed to be done because you had this goal of sharing this information with the world. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so interest can be something that we're sort of intrinsically motivated to do. Like for me, the research behind the podcast, I mean, I, I love it. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I, I spend some, somewhere between 15 and, and 40 hours on each podcast episode doing the back, the background research research uh, that goes into it and mm -hmm. uh, no, nobody else is crazy enough to do that but I, I just enjoy it I find it intrinsically motivating mm -hmm. and so I, I go far and above and beyond what somebody who would be doing it just to get to a goal would do because I enjoy it but also you know there were many aspects of the, the learning experience about the podcast that you had to go through as well that I didn't enjoy so much but because I had this goal I was able to get through it right um, and so what we see in children's play is that, um, firstly, they, they engage in play that's intrinsically interesting to them. Um, and that enables them to go deeper on topics like I do when I'm doing this research. Um, and also if they come across something that uh, is sort of a less inherently interesting part of it, if they have this goal of um, getting the cars to go down the ramp in a certain way or whatever it is that, that they're trying to do, they're more likely to persist through the difficult stuff to be able to achieve their goal. than if you said, Hey, let's do an experiment where we try and get the cars to go down the ramp. Right. <laughs> because yeah. that's your interest. That's your your thing it's not their thing yeah. and so um yeah pursue allowing children to pursue their interests and supporting them in doing that is one of the key ways that we can um really best support the way our children are going to learn um critical skills that they will need when they graduate which are not related to memorizing content yes exactly so i can hear all the little mom bells going on off Jen but 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 <laughs> what about the curriculum what about you know the test how am I gonna know that my kids are learning so can you kind of tell us what the research shows if we are so say we're moms we're deciding okay I'm gonna like it seems like the best option is to homeschool in quotes that means so many different things <laughs> yeah have you seen um, kind of a recipe for what that could look like? Are moms going to be, you know, needing to be standing there for eight hours feeding <laughs> their kids with their, what does that look like? What mm. maybe perhaps what do you see with your daughter or with, you know, in the research that, mm -hmm. that moms can use to guide them? Yeah. So if you want to, you can do school at home. <laughs> 
<laughs> um, it's probably the most stressful way of homeschooling. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, because you are um, you're replicating the issues that are created in school, which is that by using a curriculum, you're inherently saying, I don't care what you're interested in. Mm-hmm. This topic is, is more important for you to learn about than the thing that you're interested in. Mm-hmm. And in school, that works to an extent because there's a teacher who isn't the parent who's saying, you need to do this. And there are all the other students in the class who are getting on with it to some degree that provides some degree of peer pressure. And yeah. so um, when, when this kind of curriculum-based learning happens in school, it just kind of happens because it's what's done. It's what everybody's doing. Right. When you try and replicate at home what you find is that none of that peer pressure is there and the teacher isn't there and lo and behold you are the person who is now the enforcer <laughs> yeah, they don't think you're quite as convincing as the teacher uh yes and, and for most parents they just don't want to have that job they don't want to be in that position and i wouldn't want to be in that position either so what i found is a more helpful way of looking at it is to say okay well how much time are children actually spending learning in school do you, mm-hmm. do you want to put a guess on that number Oh, well, I kind of have cheated on that, but (laughs) so I think from what I, I have read, it's like, really, they're getting like 45 minutes, like maybe a little more than that, right? Like Mm -hmm. two hours of actual learning time and they're there for how long? Six to eight hours. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I've seen estimates of around an hour. So (laughs) yeah, Um, the the lower end of that is, is probably accurate. So, so I think what that does is, um, firstly, it creates enormous relief of pressure. Right. It really (laughs) does. Yes. Thank you. (laughs) You you don't have to be standing in front of your child with flashcards for eight hours a day for them to be learning anything. Um, Mm -hmm. You just don't. And and they're not getting that in school. So even if you only um, engaged with them on some kind of deep learning for about an hour a day, they would be getting approximately the same that they would be getting in school. So, mm-hmm. so there's that perspective. The other issue that that potentially introduces is, well, what are they going to spend the rest of the time doing? <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. um, oh. and, that, and that's where play comes in. Right. Um, and so for younger children, um, I actually have a blog post on a concept called schemas and a schema is a repeated pattern of developmental activity Um, And so just as an example, my daughter um, has, she's really into sorting. Mm -hmm. Um, She actually invented her ideal career, which is when uh, she's, she's, there's going to be a museum. And when you come (laughs) up to the kids museum, instead of paying in money, you have to pay in a toy. You have to bring a toy and that's your payment. And somebody is going to have the job of sorting all of those toys. And that is going to be her. (laughs) Oh, that's satisfying. I can see why she would like that. (laughs) Yes. And so if you give her anything to sort, she will be engaged for hours. Um, oh, that's so cool. Yeah. So I, post, I posted a little video on Instagram right when coronavirus started, actually, and I needed some time to work. And um, her crayon box was just a mess. And I put it out on the desk. I said, hey, you want to sort your crayons? <laughs> she, I want to do that. I want to do that. I want to do that. <laughs> so I put out a bunch of jars and this box of crayons. And lo and behold, I had two hours of uninterrupted work time. Oh, So I see, I mean, that is the perfect example of, you know, I, I have seen with my own kids that when they are allowed to just play, Mm -hmm. um, because I've mentioned before here on the podcast or on social media that my boys don't really have screen time that often. Mm -hmm. And 
none of so far we haven't done any sort of preschool they've just kind of been home and and I get a lot of questions of what do they do <laughs> all day mm-hmm. and I'm like I don't really know they just <laughs> do a bunch of stuff <laughs> they just make stuff up and they experiment and it is all just their little minds their little mm-hmm. interests inside their minds and they come up with all these things that it it really just goes to show when they're allowed to do that when they don't have the next thing that they need to go to mm-hmm. you don't really have to think about what are they going to do they come up with so so many things yeah when, <laughs> when you're not interrupting them in any way whether right. it's the next thing you need to go to do or i mean parents will just kind of we we lament the fact that our children can't play independently and then we interrupt them for so many things you know some random thing pops into our mind and and we just interrupt what they're doing and i can't tell you how batty it drives me when my husband does that to me <laughs> right oh yeah we've as adults you can think when you're you're deep down into something and someone interrupts Mm -hmm. you. It's very frustrating. Yeah. Um, and it interrupts your train of thought and then it does take you a while to get back into, into the thing. Um, okay. So when we're talking about, you know, the curriculum and the tests, I think a lot of people are a lot of parents. I, I, I mean, it's natural just as a human to want to see some sort of, representation mm-hmm. of our kids learning our own successes. So when we're talking about testing, I just mm-hmm. want to hear your, your stance on that. Yeah. So, um, I guess to take a step back on, on the curriculum, first of all, um, if we choose to use a curriculum, I think the important thing to recognize is that we're, we're choosing it for our benefit. We're not choosing it for a child's benefit. Mm-hmm. If we choose to use a curriculum, it's because we cannot get comfortable with the fact that if we don't have a curriculum, that our child is still learning something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, if we can get over that, then we can free ourselves from having to make our child learn something that they're not inherently interested in. Right. Um, and so, well, then the question becomes, well, how do I know that they're learning? And so um, I actually created a, a course that is now live. It's called Pandemic Pods in a Box. And it helps parents to see, you know, could, could I, could forming a pod to get us through this, this pandemic be something that, that works for us? Mm-hmm. And so what I, I show in that course is actually a picture that I sent to you of, um, uh, I, I, don't know what, I don't know if it's a structure or <laughs> a creation that my uh, daughter made in our back garden. What we basically did was it, it started out with our neighbors built a new fence and the guy who was making it had some scraps of wood and we asked if we could have them and he said yes. And um, I introduced Karis to the hot glue gun <laughs> and taught her how to use it and um, told her what bits to touch and what bits not to touch. And uh-huh. Uh, she spent the next three weeks pillaging the house for um, any kind of Tupperware or you know, scrap anything. And then we had to put a call out to the neighbors to say, please send over all of your, <laughs> your to-go containers because we've run out. Uh-huh. Um, and, and you can share the picture on your social media if you want to. Uh, or I would love to. This picture um, is it is really amazing what she created. We will share it for sure. It is very cool. 
Yeah. And so she, she built this thing essentially by herself. Um, she and I have an hour of dedicated one-on-one time together each day. Uh And, uh, there were times when we worked on it together and she would tell me what she wanted me to do. Um, and so I thought, well, okay, what is she learning out of this? And so I put together a, a checklist actually of all the things she's learning and it's things like um design and how to make a plan and mm-hmm. how to balance what happens when your plan didn't go quite the way you hoped with sort of just taking advantage of serendipitous happenings mm-hmm. um grittiness and and trying to find different ways of doing things that you really do want them to work in a certain way and this way is not working right now right. Um, manners in how to ask our neighbors for um for things that might help and how to thank them so that they see that we found them valuable and, and that maybe they'll help us the next time we want to be helped. Right. Um, I made a list of 10 or 15 things that she's learning out of this that are advanced skills. You know, this is not, oh, she learned what was the capital of Peru um, right. that she's right. going to forget in a week. She's, right. she's learning these advanced skills that she can apply to any kind of project in the future for years and years to come. And she's doing this by herself in our back garden with $3 worth of glue sticks. Right. Yes. And when you are explaining, when you're describing that, all I can think of is exactly what you were saying with the Peru thing. If we look at the end of our life, all those types of skills are creating, that is a capability. It's a grittiness. It's, it is way more important than can you regurgitate 10 facts that I just told you, but Again, the little parent bells going off. <laughs> it's is my kid going to be able to go to high school? Are they going to be mm-hmm. able to graduate college? But I think what it comes down to is that comparison. We see the kid next door who can read at four, yeah. and then we have to go there and push and push and push our kids for these what seems like non important when you talk about it this way. Things. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it really isn't. And yeah, Karis is six. Uh, she just turned six. She's not reading yet. Um, she can read simple words like stop, go, yes, no. She can write those words as well. Obviously, she can write her name. Mm-hmm. Um, she, she's not really reading beyond that. And I am not worried about it in the slightest. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what I try and liken it back to is how obsessed we all were mm-hmm. <laughs> um, with the age at which our child is starting to walk. When, when, when our child is around about one, um, mm-hmm. the people whose kids are walking already are like, yeah, my kid's walking already. <laughs> and the people whose kids aren't walking yet are like, yeah, my kid's not walking yet. <laughs> And it's this massive thing that we build up in our minds. And can I even remember now exactly how old she was when she walked? No, I cannot. And so the same thing will happen with reading. Um, The reason reading matters so much in schools is because it's such an efficient way of of transmitting information when you're trying to teach cheaply and put one person in front of 30 people and get everybody to learn. Um, When they're not in that environment, there are so many other ways to learn that reading, I mean, they will do it when they are ready to do it. Yep. I saw um, just an example of how long it takes kids to actually learn how to read, whether or not you put in the effort over five years or, Mm -hmm. you know, something like a certain amount of hours. And I don't remember the exact amount of hours, but it's this many hours, regardless of how much time you put in overtime. (laughs) (laughs) So you, you know, they can do that on their own in, in that amount of hours or you, for three years can slave and sweat and it will still take them that long. (laughs) 
mm-hmm. until they're, you know, it's not until they're ready. And, and I think that is with most everything with our kids. I think of, yes, the walking thing, you can lead them around for how long, but they just have to decide when they want to walk. Yeah. Yeah. And they'll do it when they're developmentally ready. And exactly. Reading is much the same. There are some children who will have some kind of difficulties um, in learning how to read and can benefit from explicit instruction and mm-hmm. and making the connections in a way that not all children need. Um, but the vast majority of children will read when they're developmentally ready. And the research shows that um, by the time they get to age, I don't know, 10-ish, the the there is no difference in the fluency and the amount that they read and the amount that they love reading compared to children who learned much earlier. It, it just, it all washes out by that point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is just relieving to hear as a parent, if you have a kid who's <laughs> maybe not quite there yet. So you mentioned the term pandemic pods mm-hmm. and before we did our little pre-chat about our talk, I had never heard of this pandemic pod um, things. So can you tell us what a pandemic pod is? Mm. Yeah, they really just kind of exploded into the public consciousness. Um, I guess, what are we now? Very, very late July. So it was, it was essentially a week ago. So kind of mid July, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and think mostly started probably in the Bay area and is expanding to other areas and, and will continue to expand depending on school reopening. Um, but I think what we're seeing here in California is that schools are going to be remote only for at least the first part of the semester. Gotcha. And parents are looking back to the spring semester and thinking, well, we're not doing that again. <laughs> right. Um, and and the, the hours of Zoom calls didn't work for the kids who were on hours of Zoom calls and the kids who didn't, who just weren't able to access Zoom. Clearly that wasn't working either. And parents are saying, well, we, we need to do something different this time around. And so uh, some school districts are are already saying, you know, this is the kind of systems that we're setting in place and and we hope that uh, you're going to work with us. And some systems are saying, you know, school's starting next week and we're not really giving out a lot of information yet. Right. <laughs> so come, come along and <laughs> and participate. And I think for a lot of parents, the the uncertainty is is very difficult to cope with. And so right. Creating a pandemic pod is is one way of, of reducing that uncertainty. And basically, what you're you're saying when you're doing that is, um, you're you're expanding your your bubble in some way to include a few other families, um, not not a large cohort, but but a few other children. And you're saying that we're in some way we're going to be supporting their socialization and or learning um, mm-hmm. through through this environment. And so, so many different formats it could take. It could be rotating the children from one house to the next. Um, it could be uh, hiring a nanny to be with them during the day and, and maybe you do some kind of homeschooling in the evening. Maybe you're hiring a teacher or a tutor um, and, and asking that person to uh, help their children keep up with school assigned work or maybe you're staying um, enrolled in school but you're not doing the work, you're doing something else or maybe you're just deciding, you know what, I'm not going to be in school this, this year or, or in the future and I'm going to homeschool. Right. So when I hear that, I think of, I think of, you know, the little kind of joy school style schools that Mm -hmm. kind of go around with preschool, which I think actually work and are, are quite fun for kids. Um, I also think of, if we look back in history, you know, the governess 
style where you have the teacher come and teach, you know, a, a broad age range of kids, which plays to something that I also think is, is good for kids. Do you think there are any, what is the pushback on these? Are there any, you know, downsides to the pandemic pod trend? Mm -hmm. Well, um, I think the main thing that people are thinking about is the, <clears throat> excuse me, the social justice considerations uh, associated mm -hmm. with having these pods. Um, a lot of the people who are talking about it in online forums are, they tend to be middle-class white mothers. Um, right. And they are doing it uh, based on concern for their own child mm -hmm. and aren't necessarily considering how, what, what are the implications of these decisions for all children, mm -hmm. um, particularly in an environment where school funding is determined by whether or not a child is enrolled in school. If you do pull your child out of school, that can have a, a detrimental impact on funding for other children. Um, not all children are going to be able to access pods. Um, there are financial considerations when you're hiring a teacher and this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so um, the way that I'm thinking about it is that, uh, yes, there are absolutely ways to set up pandemic pods that perpetuate white privilege. Um, if, if our pod only has other children in it who are white and we hire a white teacher and our express goal is to make sure that our child is ahead of um, every other child in school when they go back to school next year, then we are essentially perpetuating our white privilege. Mm -hmm. But we can also make a choice to embed social justice considerations in the way we set up our pods. So we can um, not, the, the sort of the last way I really want to do it is to, to sprinkle diversity onto the top right, right. <laughs> and, and to say, well, yeah, you, you come in and you're, you're going to be our brown face. Right, <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. um, we, we don't want to do that. Um, but, but I think a, a more empowering way of, of looking at this is that for, for us white people, this might be the first time that we can remember and may, maybe even in history that our, our government and our social systems have really failed us to the extent that they're failing us right now. Mm -hmm. But for, um, for black and brown people, who I often refer to as people of non-dominant cultures as a way of um, de-emphasizing whiteness as the norm and also recognizing the power differential that's inherent in uh, systemic racism. Mm -hmm. um, for these folks, I mean, they've operated their own social systems outside of the traditional systems for generations because mm -hmm. that's how they have survived mm -hmm. because that's what they needed to do. And so they actually bring enormous levels of knowledge and resources to this conversation. And so if we instead talk to them and say, hey, this is, this is what I'm seeing. This is the re these are the resources I have. What are you seeing? What are the resources you have? Mm -hmm. Can we work together on a solution that, that benefits all of our children? Um, then I think we're in such a powerful position to be able to use pods as a way of reimagining learning that's based on an ethic of caring for, for children, that's based on um, allowing them to learn what's best for them individually when they are able and ready to learn it rather than this sort of top-down view that really does perpetuate white privilege. Right. I, I've never thought about it that way, but I also, you know, my mind goes to this just beautiful integration of how we can connect with, you know, different ages, mm -hmm. ethnic, you know, I just, I feel like that could be a really beautiful outcome of this, of an opening of our minds to 
um, what the school system has represented perhaps that we haven't ever noticed. Right. Yeah. Because we haven't needed to notice because right. it has been set up to, uh, to keep us comfortable and to, um, try to train everybody in the way that we want to be trained. I mean, the, the, the white view of time where, where it's so regimented and certain things have to start at certain times, <laughs> mm-hmm. not everybody sees time like that and, right. and they don't get an opportunity to have a say in how schools are run and whether you have to show up at a certain time or not. And right. so it, when it's, when it's baked into every single, aspect of the school experience this allows us to step outside of that and say we get to choose this for ourselves we are not bound by this structure anymore and what do we choose Mm -hmm. and I think that's the thing that's been uh earth-shaking for a lot of parents is yes they haven't had to choose and now it's this really seems like a daunting decision but it sounds like what you're bringing to us is that it isn't quite as complicated as we're making it, perhaps we can simplify it a lot more and, and take the stress out of it. Um, so if, if you were to give your advice for what school could look like for someone who, um, is, is not going to have the option to go back in person, if you could give your, what's the right word, your in air quotes, perfect, (laughs) look at how someone could school at home. What would you suggest? Obviously there's going to be tons. I'm not holding you to this, but what would you, what would be your um, advice to a parent in that situation? Well, I, I am not the person who gets to decide that. That's the cool part about this <laughs> is that I'm not the person who, who says this is what it should be like, that the parents themselves get to make these decisions. And that's actually the purpose of the pandemic pods in a course box, mm-hmm. um, which is to say, um, here, here are some things that you need to consider. Now you get to make these decisions. And so um, if, if this is the first time we're even thinking about interest-led learning, we've never heard of this before. The, the, the only way we knew that people could learn is when somebody is standing in front of us teaching us something, mm-hmm. um, then, then just taking a step towards interest-led learning could be a massive uh, change for some families that, that has um, really beneficial impacts on their children. Right. Um, if, if we're focusing on an ethic of caring, that it, it doesn't matter what grade you get on a test, we don't even have need to have tests. What's most important is that we build these relationships between right. uh, whether it's a hired teacher or a parent who's doing this work and the students who are studying. Um, that 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 relationship is far, far, far more important than any fact that they can memorize and will carry them um, through all kinds of challenges related to learning and that they will push themselves and, and achieve so much more when, this, when, when they feel safe and when they feel cared for. And, and what exactly that care looks like is going to look different in every family and every pod. And so that I think is, is the amazing opportunity here is that we do get to define this for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, if we can uh, use these tools to push ourselves to think outside of what school must look like, of what learning must look like. Right. I love that. Take a step back and look at our own child or children, our family situation, and not have those expectations hanging over it. Just look at right. it from fresh. 
Yeah, which is something we've never had to do, and it feels really strange. And <laughs> yes. I remember the first time I started learning about interest-led learning, and when I when I first considered homeschooling, which is what we've always planned to do or have planned to do for a number of years now, um, I thought, well, do I need to know everything my daughter needs to know before I even get started? And right. how can I even know the universe of stuff she needs to know? <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and it turns out that no, you don't have to do that. That the most powerful thing that you can bring is a sense of curiosity. And that actually not knowing something is, is much more beneficial because when we know something, we have this, this sort of innate desire to step in and teach. Right. <laughs> we want the child to understand photosynthesis. And so we're going to explain photosynthesis and they're going to be able to explain it. But if I don't understand photosynthesis myself, we can go and look it up and we can figure it out together. Right. And then the child learns so much more from that than just from me launching into a, a lecture on what photosynthesis is. Right. And I think they learn that that misperception that when you go to school, you learn all the things. Yeah. That is such a misperception that I think, and it is a pain point with homeschool is how are they going to learn everything if they're at home? And I just think of it as there are, I mean, there are endless things to learn. So a kid learning in a pandemic pod or in a homeschool situation or at school, they're all going to be learning different things. And there isn't this box of things that are the right things to learn. Right. And, and the school system has told us that there is this box of right things. And, right. And because we probably went through school, I know I went through the school system. That's, that's the part that's so difficult for us mm -hmm. to get our heads around that we've been told for so many years that there is uh, a set of, of things that you must know to be able to be a successful adult. And it turns out the things that they tell us we need to know are not actually the things we need to know to be a successful adult. <laughs> we never adult. think about them again. <laughs> yeah. And then you realize you don't know how to balance a checkbook and you don't know how to evaluate a proposition on a ballot or you know right. any one of the other hundreds and thousands of things you have to figure out by yourself. Yeah. And so um, if we can overcome this idea that somebody else has determined the set of things that a person must know to be successful, then we can free ourselves up to learn uh, the things that are truly important to us. Yes, I love that. A beautiful spot to end. Although, Jen, I could talk to you for hours <laughs> and I think we need to have you back on, but I want to be mindful of your time. I do want to ask you one more question that we ask all mm -hmm. our guests, and that is, what is one habit that you have that is a game changer for you or helps you find magic in your everyday life? Hmm. Um, well, can I give two? Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the first one's super practical and I've just put it in place uh, since uh, COVID. And I used to go grocery shopping every week and cook every night. And since uh, that started, I am now shopping every two weeks. Oh. And most of the stuff that I cook in the second week is based on things that come out of the freezer. And everything that I cook has to function for two dinners and a lunch. Oh my God. <laughs> and I can't tell you how much time it has saved me. <laughs> hey, that sounds like a brilliant okay. system. So it's working very well. And uh, so that is, is really helping to find balance. And then in terms of finding the magic, um, I mean, I mentioned already the fact that I spend an hour a day with my daughter and I, I don't want listeners to feel as though well, I'm not spending an hour a day with my child. I'm missing out. The, the key, the key issue here is that we're, I'm, I'm spending time with her, so, some dedicated period of time, 
I'm, I'm being completely mindfully present in that time and we're doing something that is important to her mm-hmm. um, and that that time is really spent connecting with her and it fills our cups that in a way that allows us to I mean essentially spend a lot of the day apart because I'm working right. um, and and knowing that we have that time to reconnect each day and that I will protect that time each day I think has been something that has enabled us to find our magic as we have uh, moved through the last few months and as we continue to to move forward oh that is so beautiful and we talk about that a lot here the quality over quantity of time yeah. and I think we a lot of times as parents put so much pressure of well, I only really saw or was with my kid for like 30 minutes today and then we feel guilty. And then instead of taking that 30 minutes or five minutes or whatever it is, or maybe it's a diaper change to connect, we're, we're guilty, 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 feeling that all day. Like we're, it's not enough and it has to be a big elaborate event. So I think that is a beautiful um, reminder that our kids, they really just want us mm-hmm. fully. And I think that quality time is so, so key for them, no matter how long it is that they feel your connection there. So, oh, love both of those. And you're inspiring, <laughs> me, inspiring me with the, the meal planning system. That is brilliant. <laughs> Two dinners and a lunch. Yes. Okay. I'm doing this and I'm going to report <laughs> back to you, Jen. That's brilliant. All right, Jen. Well, thank you. I hope you have a wonderful day and thanks for all your knowledge. Thank you so much. This was really fun. All right. Let's have a good day. Let's find the magic. Me, 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 me. Brown cows.